spooky season, everyone, and welcome to the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast, where for the rest of the month, we will be uncovering new, mold, and somewhere between comic books that is sure to be a mix of the unexpected. We're going to help you find that next ghoulish reading, or a slightly decayed favorite from the past. But at the end of each show, you'll be able to treat yourself to some fantastic spooky. It's October 16th, 2023, and this is episode 141 of the show, and the start of the spooky season. The rest of the month, I'm having past and new guests come on and talk spooky season, but not always in the way you might expect. Like today's kickoff with the legendary, iconic Michael T. Gilbert, who's known for his Mr. Monster projects and celebrating 50 years in the industry. We're not talking about Mr. Monster but a dead comic book company from the dawn of the direct market, Pacific Comics. I was so excited that when I reached out, he agreed to come to the show. I think it makes for a fantastic listen. I also have two announcements to make. The first is the podcast YouTube channel is finally up and going. My taping with Gilbert is there in the future. When possible, I'll continue to put the video for the shows up there. There's also some past shows I hope to get up. And the plan is to have some exclusive content not found on the podcast. The other is my new column at First Comic News, where I regularly spotlight what's going on in digital comic books. Initially, this podcast is geared toward digital comics because I think digital and comic shops complement each other. Over the past two years, the podcast has developed beyond that, with tons of guests popping up all the time. You'll find a link to the news site in the show notes. I do need to give a shout out, though, to a fellow podcaster, Ross Aiken from Stop Let's Team Up. He's one of my favorite podcasters, and he's been on the show more than any other guest. I enjoy his insights and what he brings on the show. The other day, he released a show where I was the guest this time around. And we talked about Marvel 2150, where the thing teams up with the thing. Please check it out. I always enjoy going on the show. you also find that link in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, thanks again for checking it out. I hope you continue to sample the show. Please look at the show notes, follow the podcast on social media, run Twitter and all them great things, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. I want the podcast to continue to grow, and as I said so many times, to introduce fans to a different way of discovering and reading fantastic comic books. On to today's show. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, I have on my show a very fantastically fabulous, iconic creator, Michael T. Gilbert, who, among other things, has created Mr. Monster, which we'll talk about briefly later. But, Michael, as a first-time guest, and I always like this question, I want to know your comic book origin story and how you got hooked into comics growing up. Well, uh, when I was about seven years old, I was at my grandmother's house in the Bronx, New York, and uh, my parent, my mother and she were trying to get me to read. I must have been, I don't know, first grade or thereabouts, and I didn't want to read any books. I didn't care about that, and my grandmother pulled out a copy of a Jimmy Olsen comic book, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, 
And I, I don't know if I want to read this. Isn't it? Well, if you do this, we'll give you, you know, a cookie or something like that. So I think, okay. So I read, I read that thing and I was hooked. You know, that, that was it. I, my grandmother came to regret it because every time I visited, I would say, do you have more comics? Do you have more comics? Do you have more comics? So I'm, I must join the poor woman to, to distraction. So I know who you are and many, many fans know exactly who you are. But for somebody who's like new to comic books, Tell them a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm 72 years old. I've been in the, uh, I started, uh, got my first comic book stories published in 1973. So I've been in 50 years this year. Um, I've been uh, in most of the early independent publishers. Uh, I've uh, got at the tail end of the underground comics also with a few titles. Um, I write, draw, color letter um and i've even published comics so uh that's some of the stuff i've done i've worked with uh craig russell on the elric series back in the early 80s uh i had my own character called the wraith for a funny animal comic called uh, quack back in 1977 um and uh that was a um a funny animal parody a version of the spirit who was a huge influence on me. Um, and I've been doing Mr. Monster on and off for about uh, 40 years now. So you had your break into the industry a little differently than most traditionally. You did not break in through like the big main publishers through like DC and Marvel. How did you like break in and move your way up through the independent market back when it was fresh and the birth of the whole thing? All right. Well, I started out, uh, I was living in New York at the time and, uh, I actually did try to break into DC and Marvel and uh, without success uh, seemed to come close a couple of times with the Warren magazines, creepy uh, and eerie uh, didn't quite make it, unfortunately. And I said, okay, I'm not having too much luck here. They're printing underground comics in California. And it's a lot easier to get in there because I saw a lot of crap artwork in there. So I figured if they can get published, maybe I can get published too. So I actually moved to California and uh, in the Bay Area, and um, tried to, uh, I was able to get a, a couple of small things with some of the uh, undergrounds, but uh, it was at the, uh, this was back around 1975, and the underground comics had pretty much collapsed at that point, so, you know, my timing was impeccable, <laughs> um, but I saw there was another comic that had started called Star Reach, which is science fiction, fantasy kind of stuff like that. And uh, um, the publisher, Mike Friedrich, was in Hayward, which was not too far away from where I was. So I made an appointment to see if I could show him my portfolio. Um, I showed him my science fiction stories and my this and that here, but there was nothing he actually wanted of those. Uh, but he said to keep me in mind. And about a week or so later, I got a call from him. Uh, they were doing a funny animal comic. Uh, called Quack, and one of the contributors had uh, left, uh, uh, hadn't hadn't delivered their story, so they had a big hole in the book they needed to fill. And I said, and they asked me if I ever did funny animal comics, and I assured him I was you know, an expert in funny animal comics. I had never done a funny animal comic in my life, but uh, you know, you don't tell them that. And they said to uh, he he said uh, see if you can come up with a with a, a feature, and uh, I came up with the Wraith. Um, 
you know, on short notice, I was thinking, okay, I know everything about the spirit. I can, you know, I, I would love to be this, you know, Will Eisner on the spirit, but I can do a funny animal version of it. And I came up with that. And that was my first, uh, my first foot in the door. And later on, when he got to know me, I did get into Star Reach and another magazine he came up with called Imagine. So that's how I started there. So we're here today to talk about Pacific Comics, specifically this Pacific Comics companion from Tomorrow's Publishing. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about Pacific Comics and the companion itself. Okay, uh, Pacific Comics was uh, comics that uh, Bill and Steve Shanus started um, around 1981, maybe 77 a little bit. But they were publishing for about four years, I think from like 81 to 84. Um, and this was uh, when the direct sales market had first started and they wanted to get on there. And they were you mostly unique at the time um, as far as um, independent things as uh, they would give um, let the artists retain their copyrights and which uh, um, is kind of groundbreaking at the time because I mean it was it certainly compared to Marvel and DC. Yes. Um, now Starreach had done the same thing a few years earlier, and the Underground Comics had done that before that. Uh, which is one of the things that attracted me to the underground comics and to Star Reach. Uh, I like, you know, I put a lot of work and time into my work and I want to, you know, whenever possible, keep it. Um, I've done a few things for Marvel and DC and I've, you know, I've done that with the understanding that they'll own that stuff. But uh, most of my career has been stuff with that I've written and drawn or, or at least owns. Um, so. <laughs> no, no, go on. Uh, so they came up with this this thing, and they started getting some um, uh, some big time mainstream artists working for them. Jack Kirby, they got Steve Ditko. Uh, they sort of discovered uh, Dave Stevens, the Rocketeer, um, and uh, I got involved with it because um, Mike Friedrich, who I told you had been publishing Star Reach. Storage had gone out of business and uh, Mike uh, went to Marvel for a while doing uh, things behind the scenes and became a, a, an artist agent. Uh, and he became an agent for uh, Michael Moorcock's Elric. And uh, they wanted to put out um, an Elric comic book with Craig Russell written by Roy Thomas. Um, but Craig didn't want to uh, do a monthly, uh, you know, do a, a regular series because it was just too time consuming. He had other things he was also working on. And uh, Mike Friedrich suggested maybe Mike Gilbert might uh, be a good thing. So once again, I'm working on um, a project, this sword and sorcery uh, that I'd never worked on before. You know, just like I'd never done funny animals before Quack. But um, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty versatile. So I can, I'm, my, I can change my style when necessary. I can both writing and artwork. And uh, the only trick was that I had to move to uh, Ohio in order to work, uh, you know, closely with Craig, which he was living in Kent, Ohio, still is. Um, so it was kind of a kind of a scary thing. But I decided, OK, this is my big break is going to be my first color comic book. And it was going to be you know, high production values. Um, and we went down there and worked on it, uh, finished our six issue series, took a couple of years. Um, but um, they were we've got um, a lot of support from uh, the Shanuses, um when we wanted uh, gold foil on the covers or some special things. They usually went along with it. So we were able to get a really you know, handsome uh, book out. As a matter of fact, the first issue of Elric came out 
and the printer had botched it and it, it didn't look good at all. And they said, okay, destroy the whole run and we're going to start over again. And they did that. You don't wow. see too many publishers that would do that. So they were really trying to do quality work. So back then there was a bunch of publishers that were starting off like First Comics, Eclipse, yeah, Pacific. What made specific besides just um, attracting top creators so unique in the early independent market? Um, I think it was they really a, more of a commitment to excellence um, and trying to get some of these these bigger names and succeeding with it. They also had they had started out as distributors, so they had a lot of um, knowledge of the market and such. They were going there. Eventually, they overextended themselves, and that's what uh, uh, killed the company a few years later. But uh, while they were there, they did a, a lot of really good books. Uh, they had Bruce Jones doing Twisted Tales and Alien Encounters, which is sort of uh, you know twentieth century uh, I, EC and such. I, yeah, I was a teenager back then because my my breakthrough in the comics was like right around seventy seven. So I'm a, a big Bronze Age uh, baby. So I was right there when the direct market was coming into, and I remember the Pacific Comics. I remember Jack Kirby and all of them. And they had such a really eclectic, high quality, really different comic books than what was being published at the time. But back then, it was DC and Marvel publishing mainly the superhero stuff. And to see like Captain Victory and the stuff that you were doing, it was just so innovative at the time. It was very different. You also had time working with Eclipse. What was it like working with Eclipse Comics? And do you know if anybody's ever thought about putting together like an companion to Eclipse like somebody did with Pacific Comics? Well, I'm sure if someone did uh, a Pacific Comics companion, I'm sure someone will do an Eclipse version also. I think someone, I think I heard that someone actually is working on something like that. Um, it's, it, you know, it started off great. I really, you know, liked working with them. They were, um, um, they were the first, well, they were, the, when it came to Mr. Monster, uh, the last thing, that one of the last things the Pacific Comics did was um, a, a comic called Vanguard Illustrated. And I was supposed to be doing uh, this new character that I came up with, Mr. Monster, and it was going to be in issues seven, eight, and nine. Well, seven came out, and then the company died. Uh, there's a habit of working with the indies that a lot of them die when uh, die of mourning. Um, uh, but... Uh, we had all three issues, all three stories finished. It was a, a single solid issue. And uh, Mike Friedrich took some of the properties like, you know, uh, Elric and whatnot, and we're uh, trying to sell them around here. And uh, they decided to uh, to buy, uh, try an issue of Mr. Monster. And uh, they put it out and it was well received. So that's how I started with, with that. And uh, they, we then agreed to do a series of Mr. Monster. Um, and it was, like I said, they had a lot of really great stuff at first. I mean, there was a lot in stuff in, in common. They had, uh, published a, uh, a Will Eisner, uh, unpublished, uh, John Law comic book, uh, some Siegel and Schuster early stuff before Superman, before they came up with Superman. Um, a lot of books I really liked, um, but they, they also overextended themselves and, uh, common problem uh, back, common problem back in the early yeah. ages of the direct market. That was it. So what was I like working at the dawn of the direct market? And how different is it today's industry outside of all the publishers folding every time you turned around back then? <laughs> uh, it's very different now. I mean, you know, back then there were maybe, you know, four or five 
independent publishers. Um, you know, there was, you know, Dave Sim was publishing uh, Cerebus and a few other things. And as you say, First Comics, uh, which took over Elric when Pacific Comics went under. Um, uh, but, you know, you can, you know, you can count them on, you know, one hand, you know, a couple of hands. Comico uh, and... Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, but there weren't too many. Um, and so you knew all the things nowadays of course there's a it seems like there's a million small publishers and people can do print on demand if they want to do 10 copies of a book there, there it is um and all the kickstarter know, and, campaigns that are running all over, i could do a podcast just on kickstarter campaigns there's so many comics out yeah, there it's sure. like an endless supply so i'm curious what's it like to be an iconic creator in the age of the internet because i remember back then you know when Back even when you were first starting, you know, and in the early days of direct market, we had things like the Comic Buyer's Guide, uh, Comic Reader, Amazing Heroes. And I kind of miss all that stuff. And that fact that, you know, when back when we had the Comic Buyer's Guide, it came out every weekly and we didn't know exactly what was going to be happening until it arrived in our doorstep. And I kind of at that time don't like the fact that you've got everything right there, right at the second. But on the flip side, it really opens up the possibilities that, new comic fans can really discover stuff like they've never been able to do before in the old days of the comic mm -hmm. book stop. So how's it like with you? Uh, I'm the same way. I mean, it seemed like back then there was a small trickle of, of, of information and comics and this and that here. And now there's just this flood everywhere. Um, you know, and, uh, there are web comics. Um, I know I started doing there's And of course there's still, uh, magazines about comic books uh premier among them at the present alter ego magazine which uh i've had a column as i was amazed to think right. uh 25 years i've been doing uh a column on weird comic book history for them um and uh it's really even doing the research for that is so much easier now because uh, i have a really extensive extensive uh, digital comic collection, which means I don't have to go digging through my my heavy boxes to to find what I want. It's at my fingertips, um, and I can have um, websites that talk about creators and their histories and such, and give dates and numbers and this and that, Wikipedia and everything. You're, and you're makes... right because you can find almost anything there. I was doing some background information. I found a blogger over the weekend who actually put together circulation figures from the 70s. And I almost uh -huh. want to reach out and go, how did you find this stuff? Because <laughs> I, you know, because I mean, yeah, because a lot of stuff is still not really there. And you're right. You can get on the Internet and 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 do deep dive research. All right. Because when I do topics for stuff, I go down these rabbit holes, you know, for because I believe in doing a lot of research. And then the other flip side, which you mentioned, is people like, especially older comic book fans, frown upon digital comic books. And I get that. They like to go to the store and open their comic books. But like you said, a digital collection allows you references and to look at things and to find things. It's easier. And who wants to take their, you know, their their Silver Age comic book, open up and read it again for the third time or for some kind of research purpose? Yeah, I, I really think that, mm. that digital and print should complement each other. And they're nearly, they're not, they don't butt heads. They should be act as a gateway towards each other draw more to the digital yeah. edition, digital edition, draw more people to comic book shops and the industry thrives and everybody's happy. That's mm -hmm. at least my opinion. So, well, uh, yeah, go on. No, I want to hear what you, this is well, I, well, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of digital comics. I mean, you know, I have boxes and boxes of real comics and, you know, my favorite comics from someone even when I was a kid. Um, but, uh, 
the idea that someday I can own a complete collection of uh, uh, Lev Gleason's from the 40s or Hillman or Atlas uh, was inconceivable. It was just too expensive. I wouldn't have room for it. You know, I've got uh, just about every issue of um, action comics and most of the DC comics that I can look at or read, you know, stuff I never could have dreamed I'd have. Um, you know, you miss the smell of old newsprint, but if I want to put a stack of old comics next to me while I'm reading, I can smell it and it's just fine. So, like you, I'm a big fan of digging deep down into comic book history. Why should somebody who's just entering the comic book market, you know, they saw a few MCU films or that so terrible flash movie that nobody liked, or they just get into comic book shop. Why should they care about anything that happened even like in the 80s? What's why why should they care about anything like that? Well, you know, like to see where the things came from, for one thing. Um, and for another, I mean, you know, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a Frank Miller fan, well, you know, let's look at Steve Ditko. Let's look at Alex Toth, you know, who were influences on him. And you can see the people who influenced, you know, Steve Ditko, um, you know, Will Eisner and such. Um, and there are just different types of comics than you have today. And you might actually find them much more interesting. You know, there are some things that are very quirky things. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the, uh, you know, I started reading comics in the late fifties. So, um, you know, I had no connection to golden age comics, uh, from the forties and thirties, but I'm fascinated by them, you know, stuff that happened before I was even born, um, just to see what they were doing. My one of my mantras when I do the podcast is that there's fantastic reads from every age of comics and golden age to the present, if read within the context of the time. Now you can pick up a, a, a silver age or a bronze age, and no, it's not going to read like you read today. But a lot of that stuff is some great fun. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, sure, of course. I mean, you see goofy stuff that's uh, you know some of these comics were smart enough not to take themselves too seriously. And certainly if you go back into the 40s, you find things like Jack Cole's Plastic Man or um, Will Eisner's Spirit. And they're just unique, timeless, funny, exciting. Um, you know, or you look at the, you know, I've been at one of the things that when I was growing up that I just adored was the uh, Stanley and Steve Ditko Spider-Mans. You know, he created, co-created them. And, and uh, they're just wonderful stories. I and mean, you can just see how these characters were created and, how they looked at their most pure form when they were first starting out here. I was, um, I'm, I have, um, I'm on Marvel Unlimited and I was reading the Clone Wars and I, I got sidetracked and you're right. There I was, I'm back now rereading and I'm 55. I can't tell you many times yeah. I've reread the early Ditko and Lee stuff. And there I am. I'm like on number seven or eight <laughs> of the original Amazing Spider-Man. The heck with the Clone Wars. I'm stuck over here. <laughs> Uh, another great resource, um, especially for Golden Age, is the Comic Book um, Plus website. That's a free digital domain. They have right. got thousands and thousands of public domain, Golden Age, and even including Silver Age. And it's such a wealth of information. It's just a fantastic site. Michael, we could talk about stuff all day. I'm having so much fun. Mm -hmm. But this is a short form podcast. And we need okay. to start wrapping things up. So you get all the right. final words. What's your final thoughts today? Um, just that I think, yeah, you know, I like reprinted comics and we're in the golden age of comic book reprints and newspaper reprints and comic book reprints, every, uh, conceivable, uh, niche comics that you wouldn't think would be. Um, I think it's fascinating to see, um, the respect the comics have gotten, you know, where you see 
famous cartoonists have passed on are now reported in the New York Times. You know, seriously, um, Pulitzer Prize is given out. Um, um, unfortunately, there's also a lot of, there's almost too much product. So I think everybody's trying to get us a, 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 a part of a smaller and smaller thing here. Um, you know, there are DC and Marvel are putting out comics that I, I was inconceivable that they would print it with such small numbers back then. But uh, they're thrilled. Oh, I've got I, I sell 20,000 copies of this thing today. Wow. OK, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Michael T. Gilbert, co-creator of Mustard Monster, celebrating 50 years. If there's any links, I'll put them in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. This is a very fascinating conversation. I hope to figure out a way to get you on again. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast. Please, don't forget to follow us and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. If you can, leave a rating and a review. If you like what you hear, Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You'll find that link in the show notes. Thanks again. Hope you tune in for the next time. 